0: The orders, hate, disobey Hi, I'm Kaylee Pruittham of People Power Indie Folk Group KPH and The Canary Collective. I started a podcast during a global public health epidemic. In February 2020, I released an album called The Canary Collective Volume 1, full of songs about healing and building the world we want. So this podcast is going to start out by tracing the steps of these songs and delving deeper through conversation, exploring the people and topics who inspired me to write these tunes. So welcome, join us, and let's sing our way out of this mind together. And it's recording. Hello, hello. I am... Haley of KPH and the Canary Collective. This is the Canary Collective podcast and this is Daniel Lee calling in from LA, from Culver City. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. We had to reschedule this a bunch of times because we are both dealing with chronic illness and Daniel and I met um, about five and a half years ago at this conference in Nashville called the James Lawson Institute. And uh, Daniel actually works for um, that institute, helping organize it. And he has many, many talents, many unique positions in the movement. Uh, He used to be an actor. (laughs) He is an elected official as Culver City Council member. He ran and won And how long have you been on the city council?
1: Uh, Just a little over two years now.
0: Over two years. And um, we met because the James Lawson Institute brings together um, nonviolent movement, community organizers, people who are um, organizing for social justice uh, around the world. And we learn from some of the civil rights leaders and and trainers who were trying to follow Martin Luther King Jr.'s call to institutionalize the theories and practices of nonviolent strategic social movement building. Does that kind of characterize it correctly?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, Reverend Lawson would say uh, he prefers the phrase nonviolent struggle. Um, And Dr. Mary King likes to focus on strategy, tactics and methods and disseminating the knowledge uh, to encourage more effective campaigns. They both love using the phrase campaigns a lot uh, because they're usually tied to a specific goal uh, and using specific methods to get to that goal.
0: Yes, I really like that they when people use you know, language when they're talking about nonviolence, when it's when it is around specific goals, campaigns and strategies and tactics, rather than getting on a moral high ground of like this is right or wrong, just talking about like what's effective to achieve certain goals. <laughs> so
1: well, one of the other things that I would add, like I feel like the reason that they say nonviolent struggle is when people are sort of outside of the discipline, they sort of equate nonviolence with pacifism. And uh, when you use nonviolent struggle, or sometimes they use nonviolent conflict, uh, it Mm -hmm. underlines the fact that no, there's going to be a whole lot of tension. Yeah. uh, And there's going to be a whole lot of disagreement, and there will be danger to some degree. Um, I think a lot of people like to mischaracterize nonviolence as pacifism or acquiescence, but it's really it's, it's really dangerous and putting yourself out there and knowing there, that, that there might be violent consequences. Uh, but knowing if you keep your discipline and you've organized in such a way that you have a large enough group, you can really have a profound impact on social change.
0: Yeah. It's, it's active. It's not passive. So it's, Yeah. Um, I, I think we met in 2014 when we were paired together for a a bonding exercise and empathy (laughs) We had to like stare into each other's eyes or something and (laughs) ask questions. Um, and right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and, uh, I was living in LA. So it was really fun to get to reconnect with you, Daniel, when I was living there, but now I'm, I'm in Denver and um, we're just Zooming, but I, I was planning on having this podcast where we go through all the songs on the Canary Collective Volume 1 album and beyond in order and talk with some of my favorite people in the world who have inspired the messages behind the songs that I wrote. And uh, I have been wanting to talk with you about this on this podcast for months and months and months. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Um, this episode corresponds to Disobey, a song that I wrote about the concept that we were just discussing about how love, loving struggle and and using um, nonviolent strategies and social movements is, can be so much more badass and effective than authoritarian, uh, forceful, violent, n- militarized responses. So um, the song, you know, the chorus goes, if he orders hate, disobey, when he orders shoot, disobey. And it was originally inspired um, by a story that I heard from Ivan Marovic and the whole Otpor movement in Serbia, where they talked about the the mining, the strikers uh, who were, miners who were on strike um, kind of protesting, uh, Milosevic and this rumor I'm not sure if the story is fully true but there are reports of Milosevic ordering some of the police to shoot on those who were striking and a lot of them disobeyed those orders and didn't shoot and so this, uh, this song I wrote in the 2016 elections when I heard that Um, we have the president that was elected today and what can we do? (laughs) We need to organize. Um, so that being said, um, I just want to hear how did you get interested in learning from Reverend Lawson and all of the people who work for JLI and just the, the concepts around community organizing?
1: Uh Well, as a, a little bit of a circuitous path, um, I'm from the South, so, you know, I was born in Opelika, <laughs> Alabama, and the person that I've been closest to growing up is my grandmother. Um, and one of the proudest uh, accomplishments that she likes to talk about is being a part of the Montgomery Bus Boycott um, mm-hmm. with MLK. And so, like, that's sort of the context in which I was brought up, like, one of the things that my mom pounded into me and my sister in particular when we were young is, you know, during the summers where we didn't have school, we basically had to learn uh, civil rights education. Wow. Um, So, you know, we knew a lot of stuff beyond, like, uh, MLK and Rosa Parks and Malcolm X a long time ago. Um, like you know elementary school Uh, uh, I also went to sort of a hippie magnet middle school where we watched the uh, documentary eyes on the prize uh, which is a 14 hour like fantastic civil rights documentary you know when we were like 11 and 12 Um, I think some people were 13 but like uh, uh, it's sort of been something that's been inculcated like when I moved out to the Los Angeles area, it was for film. I got my film degree at USC. The first time I went to graduate school it was for script writing. Um, but, you know, along that course, I stayed politically active. Um, and that there just sort of came a point where, you know, things were mounting around the Iraq war and the Patriot Act. Um, and it just seemed like everybody who was in power was just, incredibly selfish. (laughs) I know it doesn't seem that different right now. Um, But, you know, this was my, you know, realization. And I I really felt like, uh, you know, just electing somebody to this position or that position wasn't really gonna get us to where we needed to go. Um, So I wanted to learn more about what it takes to build a more broad-based movement uh, around that time, I got involved with the move to amend, and I'm on the board of directors there. We have uh, an amendment in Congress advocating for a constitutional amendment that says corporations are not people and money is not free speech. Around that same time, was got very active with Occupy um, mm-hmm. here in Los Angeles, but then also... Uh, a bit in New York because I just happened to be in DC for a conference and I was like okay I'm on the east coast I don't get here often let me go to New York for a few days and I was there in Occupy in like week two or something like that Uh, and Zuccotti uh, also spent some time in Occupy Chicago and Occupy Oakland Um, so established a pretty broad network of uh, Occupy folks who were really hastening like a larger conversation around something that we haven't really talked about in a very long time in this country in a serious way. Yeah. Doing something for poor people. It's more broadly income inequality, but very specifically, it's poor people. And that's its connection to the 60s and the work of uh, Reverend Lawson and Dr. King around, you know, the Poor People's March, which uh, MLK had planned uh, before his assassination. Um, and things like that. Like, uh, it'd been something that had been in the back of my mind for a very long time. Uh, And after I completed, um, not completed, but, you know, I was still involved with uh, Occupy, but the movement had fizzled out. I was looking for a way to cement this sort of new path for me, because I had been focused on entertainment. Uh, And that's what my degrees were in. so I got my I went to UCLA for my MSW, my master's in social welfare, social work, um, and I had the opportunity to do an environmental justice fellowship at the Liberty Hill Foundation here in Los Angeles. And towards the end of that, I got the opportunity to go to the James Lawson Institute through some connections that I, I had established with the Occupy. Uh, yeah. And, you know, my path towards the Institute was sort of different. I d- actually didn't apply. I just had a conversation with Hardy Merriman, uh, the current executive director of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. And, you know, he was like, yep, you, s- you sound like you'd be appropriate. I came to Nashville, I met you, boom.
0: <laughs> and now, what is your technical role with JLI?
1: So technically, right now, my role, depending on who you talk to, is either project manager or project director. Um, My interpretation is I do most things, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I'm in regular consultation with Reverend Lawson, uh, regular consultation with uh, Dr. Mary King, who's based in DC. Reverend Lawson is in the Los Angeles area. Also regularly uh, consult with our faculty and staff, which are on a institute by institute basis. So we have presenters from across North America who are either uh, professionals in their field, whether it's nonviolence or peace studies or organizing uh, from an academic perspective, but also professionals in their field when it comes to on the ground organizing and activism who've won campaigns for specific objectives. And are contemporary. You know, these campaigns are from like two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Um, and uh, I interface with them. I also do everything that we need to do when it comes to admin, finance, and logistics. Uh, in addition to social media. Um, so, if you've ever been a part of a small nonprofit. <laughs> probably know what I do, because he probably did everything as well. Um, but, but more or less, I, I, I keep everything moving. Also, yeah. I, I find us money. Um, just wrapping up two instances now, one with the California Endowment and one with the student Stuart, Mar- Stuart Mott Foundation to keep us rolling while we look towards planning institutes in South Carolina where we have a funder who is interested, but things might be held up due to COVID-19. And then Stockton, California, where we had planned an institute in April before the shutdown. So we're probably gonna try to plan one in Stockton, California again, where Mayor Tubbs, who's had a universal basic income pilot going for some time, uh, is the first African-American mayor, but also one of the first larger cities. I think uh, Stockton is 300000 where they're doing a universal basic income pilot. So we're hoping to get back up there uh, and work with him in 2021. Um, but
0: yeah. Well, I yeah, I hope that the work continues because, you know, after I went to jail, I just saw so many movers and shakers, whether, you know, two months later, I was in New York City at the Um, People's Climate March and just ran into like 15 people from JLI and they all happened to be like some of the main organizers for huge contingents of scores of people from around the country, around the world, or if I was hearing about um, Standing Rock organizing or just whatever was going on, the Women's Resistance Chorus, seeing JLI trained people behind it. So I mean, I'm not saying that it's all JLI people who are <laughs> doing things in the world, but definitely, I feel like the domino effect of what JLI is doing um, can be seen far and wide. So I hope it continues. And the for those listeners or viewers who don't know, who James Lawson is. I was obsessed from age nine, like always, always, want, you know, watch documentaries about the trainings, preparing people for lunch counter sit ins during the Southern Freedom Movement. But do you have any, um, do you have a spiel for introducing Reverend Lawson?
1: <laughs> well, I, I think Reverend Lawson speaks best for himself. Um, I, I I can say what I can, but then also, I would invite people to um, search YouTube um, for just a short Reverend Lawson speech, maybe something that's just like five or seven minutes. Like he represents himself really well. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and um, Reverend Abernathy and a lot of the luminaries of the civil rights movement one of the chief architects of the lunch counter sit-ins in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, 19, 1959, and um, actually a pretty chief strategist when it comes to the Montgomery bus boycott and the Freedom Rides, and a lot of the other um, actions that have been taken separately, but which he would group into the Black Freedom Movement of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and. Usually, the 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 frame that he uses is 1953 to 1973, um, but he, he's basically you know a trainer of trainers, uh, one of the largest impetuses of uh, the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. called him the mind of the movement. Um, if you've happened to live in the Los Angeles area for the last uh, thirty to forty years and you've either been involved with organizing or politics, you've met Reverend Lawson. Um, our you know uh, current mayor, Eric Garcetti, trained under him. Our former mayor, Antonio Villar-Lagosa, trained under him. Our, my Congresswoman, Karen Bass, and the current head of the Congressional Black Caucus, trained under his uh, Saturday morning programs, which he continues to do. And he's done at uh, Church Holman United Methodist where he was the lead pastor for a number of years. Um, But he continues to do those trainings uh, on a limited basis. I think they're semi-virtual now, or maybe by phone, but he's done those for years. While he was teaching at uh, UCLA, he also, he teaches a class every spring at UCLA in the School of Education. Uh, But he trained a lot of the people who went on to form United We Dream, and went on to basically draft the the Dreamers immigration policy and get the Obama administration to adapt it. Uh, So they openly speak about, oh, and a credit to him and the UCLA Labor Center and Kent Wong, who he works with there. Um, But if you've done any type of labor organizing, whether it's with the janitors, the airport workers, uh, the hotel workers, Reverend Lawson has been in your court and he's been training you in LA County for 30 to 40 years. And of course, he's a Methodist minister. So he's been training people around the country within that denomination and within others for, you know, the last 50 years. But in Los Angeles in particular, he's had a profound impact on the immigrant and union community, uh, and uh people of color in general, you know, working for better working conditions and better rights. So he's much more well-known in Los Angeles. Uh, One of the things that the Institute is trying to work on right now is to finish a biography of uh, Reverend Lawson. So that a lot of the stories that he tells me from week to week when I'm asking him about, you know, his availability for a meeting next week that we got to have with a funder. uh, And then he, you know, he segues into a story about, you know, him and MLK meeting for lunch in, you know, 1962 or something. Like, you know, a lot of those stories that he basically tells you one-off will finally be uh, immortalized um, for a broader audience to hear. Because there's a lot of work. A lot of people see the Civil Rights Movement in broad strokes. They see, you know, the March on Washington they see the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, they see the sitting campaigns, but they don't see the massive amount of training that happened ahead of time and the massive amount of community building and community outreach that even preceded that training. So it's all, all about community building to start, but then activating that community and providing different outlets through which people can be activated, you know, not just the one, but letting people do what they feel most comfortable, but also something that really contributes to the overall goal of the movement.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like current organizations um, in the US or LA specifically are in the the modern movement for black lives are like what organizations are exciting you in their work of community organizing and building?
1: Well, this is actually a point in which uh, me and Reverend Lawson had a little bit of disagreement like a year or two ago. Yeah. Um, because when Black Lives Matter initially started, uh, Reverend Lawson had a lot of interaction with the organization. But at that point, the organization was, and I mean Black Lives Matter in LA, which is, when, which is where Black Lives Matter started. It was mostly a bunch of like uh, black uh, queer women who started, uh, phrase and the notion yeah Uh, but when uh reverend lawson initially interacted he made a whole lot of demands on like you know a more specific focus like what are you asking for what is the time frame and how are you going to get there and he wasn't necessarily satisfied with their answer but like in the preceding years there's there's been a lot of very specific focus Uh, there's been you know a call to you know, unelect our African-American female DA Jackie Lacey, who even though there have been numerous instances where either the sheriffs or the LAPD have been uh, found to be out of practice, and even the LAPD's internal uh, review has been like, this is out of practice, she's declined to uh, prosecute. She's Mm -hmm. consistently declined to prosecute killer cops. Um, And you know, that's been a focus not one that Reverend Lawson always agreed with, but it's, it's been something that they've been laser focused on. And then this year, you know, Black Lives Matter, not just this year, this year is the most publicized iteration of their people's budget, which is a budget that's more pointedly focused on uh, social services and things that support com- community and education rather than the further criminalization of mostly black and brown and poor communities in LA County yeah um and they have a laser focus but one of the most encouraging things that Reverend lawson has communicated to me like almost every week for the last four or five weeks is he's basically said daniel we never got to the point where we had demonstrations in 50 states at the same time we never got to the point where we had over 700 cities having demonstrations this is impressive and you know they have fairly explicit demands, and you know we we are in an agreement. Um, as much as I profoundly respect Reverend Lawson, we do disagree quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, he holds me uh, as a friend, um, you know, and you know intellectual equal. So when we do disagree, it's it's not like a shouting match. It's more of a mm-hmm. Well, I actually think this is the issue, and it's more minute than that, and it's much more of a—it's much more of a conversation. And I think Reverend Lawson also has that gift when he speaks with people at any level of engagement or any level of education when it comes to nonviolence. You know, he's very good at meeting you where you are, and you know, pushing you to go further. He's not—he's not gonna, you know brush you off and say you don't know what you're talking about. He's going to be like, well, what you don't understand is a b and c and he'll give you an example, you know. He won't condescend. He'll yeah. tell you why he thinks what he thinks and he won't just tell you you're wrong. I think a lot of people who try to who who think that they're pushing change um, often alienate people by condescending to them.
0: Yep. Well, what are some examples of creative, direct actions that have inspired you to, you know, a lot of people when they think, you know, protest it's limited to a rally or holding up a sign in a march. Um, but do you have other examples of the many different nonviolent movement tactics that people can use and that you've You've seen in history or your own organizing you've done.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I would recommend um, a couple books: "Why Nonviolent Struggle Works" by Erica Chinoweth and uh, Maria a. St- Maria Stefan, <laughs> not me. Um, but like, uh, uh, also uh, nonviolent techniques, um, but there, 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 they're quite a few. I mean, and I think, you know, some of the underreported like sit-ins are like, uh, the pushes to, uh, desegregate swimming pools that happened in the South. There are a lot of swimmings that people don't think about. <laughs> I, think, I feel like that's a very creative way to go where it's like, yes. I'm in the water. What are you doing? Like, I'm just, yeah. I'm causing trouble in some way. And it, 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 Those type of things highlight the absurdity of the situation, the absurdity of segregation. And I think that's what the most creative actions do. Uh, I'm on the board at Move to Amend. So like around the country, we've seen a lot of uh, funerals for democracy where (laughs) people will bring a casket to a state capitol and basically ask people to sign on to the We the People Amendment or to sign on which is HJR 48, or to sign on to some state-sponsored amendment advocating for an amendment to the constitution that says corporations are not people and money is not free speech. Um, I always like to lift up the work of uh, ACT UP uh, in the 80s and early 90s, because they did a lot of creative actions around like uh, um, HIV and health advocacy. Uh, As you mentioned in our prior conversation, they spread ashes on the White House lawn um, they brought corpses to demonstrations. Um, they they protested at pharmaceutical uh, companies yeah. who only, only tested either on exclusively men. So women weren't tested, so differences by gender weren't um, considered. They tested exclusively on only like straight white men for the most part where like uh, the people who were being affected were gay and sometimes they were primarily people of color. Um, and then, you know, one of my favorites is from the Youth Justice Coalition here in Los Angeles County, uh, where they basically did like a, a thriller, thriller a flash mob where they get a bunch of people together to dance like thriller at Sunset Junction and um, East Hollywood. Uh, and shut down traffic uh, to try to raise awareness about the need to uh, take funding away from the LAPD and give it to uh, social services that support students, especially students who are involved in the carceral system to some degree. Um, but it was, you know, it was beautiful. You know, you think initially pe- you're stopping traffic, people are gonna be annoyed, but then they see people like, you know, <laughs> Michael Jackson dancing and they're like, um okay well this isn't that bad you know they're they're in rhythm and i do like michael jackson um so it's you know it's just a way to get your 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 message across to audiences that might not come to something standard like a march or protest like we all know wherever we are at a march or a protest we usually see the same people unless it's like a big moment like we're seeing right now we usually see the same people If you want to get other people out, you got to go to where they are, Uh, which is what uh, we did with Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles this past Christmas. We had a Black Christmas where we uh, went to Hollywood and Highland, which is a huge mall in Hollywood. And we sang um, social justice Christmas carols. uh, And we went from store to store doing it. Some of the stores closed uh, and would not let us in. Others tried to keep us, you know, at the entrance, but you know we continued to, because I mean we're customers. The fact that we want to sing shouldn't be, you know. It it, it shouldn't bar our entrance, uh, but then we ended the rally with the a, a dance party in the plaza of the Hollywood and Highland uh, Shopping Center. Um, And we live streamed everything. I was live streaming along with the, I think like 10 or 20 other live streamers. Uh, But you know, it's a way to get your message out to people who might not ever consider coming to a rally or a march uh, who might already support you or who might be supported by seeing your presence. You know, I can, I think people's minds are sometimes closed. To what they think uh, nonviolent action or even protest in general can be. Uh, And when you present them with these other more creative actions, it gives them, you know, this imagination with which to, you know, think about actions that they could create themselves.
0: Yeah. Some of the only jobs that I've ever had out of college have been centered around training young people, high school students, or people in college on community organizing tactics. And we would give this workshop on spectrum of allies, how there are a lot of, you know, some people who will definitely never agree with you, (laughs) Um, but kind of thinking about the spectrum of allies who might be listening to this conversation, um, you know, what would you say to, let's go through some, some archetypes. <laughs> people who wanna help, people who have never been to a protest before. I don't know about you, well, maybe all of your friends are activists by now, but I had a lot of friends who have never, ever, ever been to a protest before, and they were going to marches lately. Um, someone who has never been to a protest before, but wants to help and get involved um, in the movement for Black Lives in the next couple of months. Uh, Do you have some ideas of where you think people's best efforts can be put forward to get the most nonviolent bang for their buck?
1: Well, I think it sort of depends uh, both on their, their situation, like, I, I mean geographically, and you know, their particular skills. I think you know, the first and the most basic thing to do, uh, and I've, I've had um, friends who would never uh, consider uh, going to a protest before, call me and ask me when I'm going to be at the protest. Uh, I have to be like i 'm immunocompromised, so i 'm not gonna go, but here 's all the information you need um, yeah. but uh and and that 's been very encouraging. There have been a lot of new people who have uh, been in the streets um, and you know I, I was able to join them once. I took it in an ninety five and I went to one protest, but sort of plan it safe um, Big but
0: breath still for you
1: yeah yeah but but I think the first start is to go to a protest. Um, but after that, like, you know, long term, and I think a lot of people say this, you know, you need to get involved with an organization. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of unofficial organizations. It doesn't have to be an official nonprofit. Sometimes it's better if it's not, uh, who are consistently doing this work almost exclusively with volunteers. And, you know, there are multiple instances in LA. June just ended. So uh, June 30th is usually the end of the budget cycle for municipalities around around the country. Um, It's different, you know, in different places, but generally June 30th is the drop dead date for the budget. Uh, So I've seen a lot of positive activism around uh, reaching out to council members in LA City to uh, advocate for people's budget. Uh, There've been a lot of people who've reached out to me who've liked the things that I've proposed for Culver City and the Culver City Council have been like, I like what you're doing, what's wrong with your colleagues, what can we do? And I'm like, (laughs) you need to talk to my colleagues. Um, We actually had a protest, which has garnered some controversy here in Culver City, where a group of students uh, organized a protest and they went to the mayor's house, uh, our current mayor in Culver City, and they protested outside his house. he was actually at his place of business where he was engaging in our virtual council meeting at the time. Um, So he wasn't there, his family was there, his wife was there. Um, But you know, there was some positive tension there around like, you know, people in his neighborhood, people in his family being, you know, incensed or inconvenienced, but not being threatened in any way. You know, really just being told, this is what we want you to do. Um,
0: Yeah, this is urgent.
1: Exactly, you know, so I think that type of thing, but also recognizing the type of skills that you have. Like there are a lot of people in Los Angeles in particular who have creative skills, who have like graphic design skills, who can make great flyers, who can make great websites, you know, who can make pictures look better, who can write press releases, uh, who have the resources to either make food or buy food. Um, One of the things that Black Lives Matter used to do when they were free to meet in person, is always provide a meal. Um, I think sometimes people underestimate the value of having a communal meal and eating together. Um, It's something that we do, you know, with the people we care about, you know, uh, either one-on-one or in a group setting and it's intimate. But when you do it in an organizing context, it gives you, you know, a place to be a little less tense, a little less mission focused get to know people more and build that type of group cohesion that you need when things get really tense. Um and, you know, I've been in a lot of tense situations with people. Um, but I've been lucky enough on some times to be there with people who I just know. People who are from like an affinity group where it's just like, I know I can depend on you. I know you're not going to like, you know, I don't know, rat me out to the cops or do something weird. Um, and it's good to have that cohesiveness. And I think having a meal is essential. But also, you know, one of the big things that I did when I was very involved with the Occupy and Black Lives Matter is I was a medic. Yeah. And when I was in the uh, Air Force and the Air National Guard, I um, one of my additional duties was teaching CPR uh, and teaching uh, com- combat first aid, which in the Air Force was called first aid buddy care. Um, But, you know, in the context of a protest, some people are gonna freak out. Like some people will just need to be calmed down. It'll be anxiety. Some people will go into shock. Some people might get hit by, you know, non-lethal rounds and it might be hard to get medical staff to them. And you might have to make sure that they're calm until medical professionals can get to them. So if you have like any of, you know, a litany of skills, whether it's around peacekeeping, actual medical skills, you know, graphic design, uh, web design, whether you have a podcast or something. Like there are a lot of different ways that you can get involved, Um, you know. And then on the ground, like if you're white people in particular, you know, if the protest is around police brutality, perhaps you can form a layer between the police and people of color. You know, if you're a man and the protest is around like, you know, sexual violence maybe you can do the same
0: yeah yeah i i know that a lot of people um are you, the conversation was pretty heated during the occupy times about people calling like diversity of tactics perspective of um wanting to not just say we commit to non-violence in our tactics as a resistance movement and now um especially in the movement for black lives with certain community organizers choosing to use um what some define as violence or looting as tactics um to move the movement forward i think a lot of um i mean it's it's not to compare because it's you know there's no comparison between struggles but you know if a woman were being uh raped and a you know someone intervened a, a man who was doing that and the woman started screaming and uh you know beating the the man um a lot of the focus wouldn't go on, hey, woman, try to be more strategic in the way that you are setting this boundary and really let's let's have a training and how she can calm down and <laughs> let's have a <laughs> training and getting her to pledge nonviolence i I think the the focus would be on how the heck do we try to get this man from harming her and other people and i I think that argument has been really important to shift the focus away. Like, why are people focusing so much on, like, um, asking people who are fighting oppression to ask nicely? We should be focused on the police brutality and the, the prison industrial complex and all of the people who are causing really horrible harm. Um, But I'm just curious if you've had any kind of conversations about that with um, people involved in James Lawson Institute specifically, because one of the missions of that is to encourage people to have a a non-violence commitment.
1: Well, I think one of the bigger tensions with the Institute and um, a lot of participants over the years is the argument about the definition of violence. And a lot of younger people, uh, particularly younger people, if they're people of color or women or uh, low-income people, uh, they talk a whole lot about structural violence and you know the contrast between structural violence and, say, you know, a target burning down. and you know they, they, they talk about waiting that, and I think it's, it's something that nonviolent practitioners and uh, theorists. <laughs> really need to struggle mm-hmm. because this is my personal opinion, not the opinion of the James Lawson Institute. Yeah,
0: Your personal. <laughs>
1: um, a lot of people can be incredibly dogmatic, um, and a lot of that dogmatism comes from privilege. Um, a lot of the people who are the most dogmatic are white, nonviolent, middle-class practitioners um, who, even though they might like have a person of color as a partner or a person of color is like a a, a daughter or a son or a sibling, they aren't. Um, So the conversation around the structural violence that people of color, low-income people and women experience every day, a lot of times really doesn't affect them on a day-to-day basis. So it can stay a theoretical conversation for them. Um, But when we're talking about lives, Uh, I would happily and consistently uh, weight the lives of people over the value of property. Uh, And I think one of the big and most important distinctions is a lot of the people who are organizing these um, protests or uprisings or marches aren't really focused on looting. Um, You know, that happens to be people who decide to come of their own independent will and you know, may or may not be frustrated with the conditions in their community. And they're acting out based on that, you know, other people might just see an opportunity to loot something, you know, that's a whole variety of reasons why things happen. And I think there's a tendency to conflate. And there's a tendency for nonviolent practitioners to just follow whatever the news told them. So if the news says, oh, and the protesters got violent, well, if you were there, Sometimes you can see a clear distinction between these protesters who are organized, who are asking for something, who are trying to make a statement, who are uh, trying to get attention to their issue, who are talking to the news cameras about specific policy, and then these other people who are running into target. And sometimes there's overlap. Uh, A lot of times there's a huge distinction, Uh, but I think there's a tendency to conflate when you don't need to conflate. Also, there's a tendency to focus on uh, this thing violent that might've happened with like, you know, one or 2% of the people at the entire protest and completely ignore, you know, these 200,000 people who came out, protested peacefully and then went home and asked, you know, their elected representatives to do something. Like, and I think that's harmful and we need to call out the media when they do that, because. You're you're highlighting, you know, the worst, quote unquote worst. That's not me saying it. Uh, the worst aspects of whatever's happening here, and ignoring uh, the most positive by your definition of like violence versus non-violence. Uh, wherever you fall on that, your coverage is really biased. It's super biased towards the violence and the sensationalism, and to some degree. That is why we have Trump, uh, because the thing that is most sensational, and I think that is you know the most apt to rile people up, to get a response, to get them commenting on you know your live feed on your news channel on YouTube, on Twitter to get them adding ABC Seven or something is the controversial stuff, and yeah. that's what that's what the news focused on during the 2016 election cycle, and that's sort of what they're still focused on and they need to take responsibility for what they cover. Uh, because if you're only covering uh, the most polarized stuff, then you know it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're pushing polarization when we might all be closer to the same place than we think.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, I guess another archetype of an ally that might be, who might be listening is um, another canary, <laughs> canaries with chronic illness. Canaries being at the forefront of public and environmental health and housing crises. Canaries at the forefront in the mine. Canaries are the ones to tell people, there's a problem here, we're all about to die, I'm gonna die first of <laughs> this like lethal level of toxin. Um, and how do we make those canary cries loud enough and annoying enough to or sensational enough to be heard and to inspire those miners to turn around and get out of the mine um, and bring our cages with them. So, what are the uh, <laughs> what are the ways that people dealing with chronic illness in this time of pandemic can be, you know, doing community organizing virtually, or you know, how how can people like us who can't go out to marches um, and protests as safely, uh, what can we do? Do you have any tips?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a a more difficult question. I actually had a lot of friends um, reach out to me right after the lockdown started. They were very concerned. They're like, are you all right? This seems like your time, but also, you shouldn't go outside. So you must be going crazy right now. Yeah. I was like, sort of, yeah, I am sort of going crazy. Like I'm posting on like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram all the time, but I'm like, I, I used to joke like when I don't show up at protests, my friends tend to get arrested a lot more. Uh, <laughs> but when I'm there, I, I, I have a positive effect on keeping them you know, out of cages. But you know beyond that more personal concern it's 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 very hard because i feel like um what you're doing right now is you know an example of one of the things that people can do you know to spread the word about the people who've been really talking about like um a lot of the detrimental effects of climate change and how they will affect public health and lead to more pandemics um a, a, a lot of things around like how our public health s- system, well, which is more or less non-existent, but like our social service system uh, needs to be beefed up to to really address this, but also to address public health when it's not turned a pandemic. Um, I think all of that's very helpful, but I think there is sort of a missing element. Like I feel like I feel like there's a lot more that people with our story that we could be more impactful um, if if, if we got our stories out there more Um, but particularly those of us like me and you who basically you know aside from looking incredibly tired (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know people can't really tell they're like what you're sick no no you're super healthy you know uh, there there there's something that we can share about like the way in which our lives have been profoundly limited um by something that like is basically invisible and how you know if we don't really take substantive steps on the public health level to address this this could be everybody this, like our day to day this could be everybody you know yeah we could have to like you know gauge our ability to walk from our bed to our door to determine what we can do that day because, you know, we, we gotta feel how exhausted we are that day, you know, or we get, we, we gotta, you know, take it slow for the first few hours in the morning to see, you know, how intense the pain is going to be that day before we decide whether or not we can actually make the meetings that we plan, you know, we gotta cancel, you know, things that we had planned for like months, um, because this morning was really bad and none of the medicine's working. Um, that could be everybody if we don't actually take the type of public health steps and in conjunction with public health, you know, climate change policy steps that prevent further pandemic outbreaks um, you know, to really address the situation, but um, don't really have like, an idea for the solution. But I really do feel like, you know, what you're doing is on the right track. I really feel like if we had a broader venue to share our stories, like in a very personal but broad way, um, then people could understand. uh, And unfortunately, people seem to only understand when it's like, oh, that could be me. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, people could understand like, you know, how severely they could be limited by really realizing the degree to which we are limited by you know the stuff that we go to -to day-to-day pandemic or not
0: yeah well my invisible illness wasn't so invisible shortly after we met i you know i went to being bedridden and unable to open my eyes for more than a couple minutes a day for a couple years but um, when I'm finally, that when that diagnosis happens and you're that sick, you're right. that our, We tend to be boxed in and hidden in our bedrooms and our lives aren't getting out there. Our stories aren't getting out there and especially not getting out to the decision makers, um, the heads of the CDC or senators who are voting on, you know, public health. <coughs> so um, I do have a dream, Daniel, of, doing virtual lobbying for people with chronic illness. And we've started these groups that we're trying to do, you know, once every two weeks, gathering people from around the country on Zoom calls, where we're just supporting each other to take a two hour lunch break, whatever we're doing, to um, email, send creative handmade letters and cards, uh maybe even organize virtual flash mobs where we're serenading a senator uh and just calling and contacting the people who are supposed to represent us with powerful reminders of urgency maybe we can't go out in front of their houses to remind their families of the urgency of a cause but um to make demands and just try to reinforce that relationship between elected officials and their constituents. So you have an incredibly unique position as someone who is an activist and and just multi-talented and a community organizer, but also you are an elected official. So do you have any inside tips on how people can email or call their elected officials in a way that they're more likely to hear them, hear their story?
1: Well, uh, very generally, my my biggest uh, advice would be to just get in people's face as much as you can.
0: Um, Even by Zoom.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know it's a little bit more difficult with all the virtual stuff, but um, there are a lot of uh, uh, protests still going on. And a lot of elected officials are either, you know, trying to be in community or... It's an election year and they're up for re-election. So they're making appearances at these things. So, you know, wear your mask, be six feet away, get up into their face. Cause uh, you know, sometimes if if it's a very big and popular issue, we can try to respond to like emails and phone calls. Um, But you know, even for a city as small as mine in Culver City, uh, for one item that can be 400 emails Uh, and as someone with, you know, uh, another full-time job who's pursuing his doctorate as well, (laughs) I'm not necessarily gonna be able to get to all of those. Yeah. Um, But if you can find a way to get into my face, if your email isn't just, this is what I wanna say, but I'd like to meet and I'd like to talk to you, um, or, you know, you can actually come to the meeting and make a comment on the item, Or, you know, if, you know, like one of my colleagues, not myself as much since, you know, I'm uh, staying home as much as possible, but if one of my colleagues is going to be at a protest, be in their face, it's the most effective way. Um, The emails help and the volume of emails help, but if they're all the same email, that's less effective. Um, So if people can really share a personal story, uh, but then phone calls, Uh, phone calls are good. But, you know, if if you really got something to say and you think it's specific, say, hey, I want to Zoom or yeah. no, like, I, I want to talk to you face to face. And the face to face, as I said, that's probably not going to happen. But if, if someone's at a protest anyway, talk to them at a protest from six feet away. Uh, if you're going to send an email anyway, it can hurt to add one sentence And I'd really like to zoom with you if possible, or I'd like to WebEx, or I'd like to you know house party, or FaceTime, or you know Google Hangout, or whatever video platform, because I think you know really seeing a person uh, face to face is much more effective.
0: Yeah. What about sending a video from your hospital bed and tweeting it at your member of Congress? Would they be more likely to see that?
1: I think I think that's definitely effective. Um, there's uh, I'm I'm blanking on his name, but there's a member of uh, Local Progress, which is a national organization of local elected a- officials across the country. Uh, there's one with ALS. Um, I think his name is AD. Um, but you know when he started with the organization, he was ambulant. Amblyotory, and you know, it's like, well, I've just been told I'm sick, blah, blah, blah. Now he's in a wheelchair. Um, I think he can move his neck a little, um, but he's more or less paralyzed for the most part. Uh, And this happened very rapidly, but he's been successful in at least getting some elected officials and some presidential candidates uh, to make some statements around healthcare issues. And the thing, of course, he's been pushing the most is Medicare for all. Uh, Because in his context, he could have gotten things treated earlier. Uh, He's in a privileged position to some degree. So like, even with all of his difficulties, he knows he has it a whole lot better than other people. But if we had Medicare for all, then people wouldn't have to be so in the dark and be so frightened uh, when they are um, accosted with really life-changing medical conditions and I know like when I first got sick it was life-changing because there was first pain in my head but then pain everywhere and no explanation no matter what doctor I went to so it was incredibly disorienting and having you know having some type of structure on the federal level, that sort of accounts for what seems like an explosion of autoimmune diseases and um, unidentified chronic pain conditions. Yeah, would be worthwhile because uh, I mean, it, is it our food? Is it our air? Is it only genetic? Is it our genetics being complemented by our food or our air or something coming from our? automobiles, our buildings? We should find out. Uh, you know, there are over fifty million people who deal with chronic pain every day. And I think that estimation is probably pretty low.
0: Yeah, I'm just 45% of Americans have or will have a, a chronic illness at some point in their life now. But that number was like one in 600 something back in the 70s. So you're right. I mean, it's documented. It's growing. That number is getting out of hand. And I'm so sorry that you're one of the people who has really severe pain um, that is still, you know, you're not getting as many answers for as I would like for you. So we got to get, got to get more support and get these stories out there because You know, we're taught to like not complain so much, but if our complaining helps (laughs) um, people realize how much of a problem this is for so many people and that we need to get at the root causes, then um, we can prevent this happening to so many more people in future generations.
1: Yeah, well, and and obviously, I mean, I hope, uh, you know, you can find relief as soon as possible.
0: Thank you, yeah. Well, do you want to pretend it's the year 2040 now, <laughs> actor, a Screen Actors Guild former member?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. I usually need a little bit more preparation, but I'll I'll do what I can.
0: <laughs> I've made everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> um, people have varying degrees of. Uh, resistance oh the first episode of the canary collective podcast is another jli friend nikki sakura and her son luke so Uh um it was very fun imagining a world in which it's we, we have more water rights uh so hopefully that is the same world that we're in year 2040 um daniel welcome back to the canary collective podcast all these years later. I'm so glad we're having this reunion. Wow. The last time we talked, we had no idea what revolutionary shifts were underway. I'm so glad that you became president. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Me too. Me too. It was, it was good. It, it was good. We changed some stuff.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so glad that it just we we got so many more people in the year 2020 to realize that stuff had to change really fast and it, it took a lot of crumbling of the old to have the new but remember those on mass flash mobs that people did in 2021 and just shut down so much of dc uh oh
1: yeah i think the thing that sticks in my head the most is uh you know finally bringing a general strike to the united states of america and you know seeing everybody come out and really support each other so it wasn't just like a day-long thing but it's something that we kept up uh, until we got you know universal health care focused on prevention so that you could see your doctor as much as you needed to uh, in a preventive manner uh, before you got sick. And then of course, as much as you need to once you got a chronic illness, but then also the home's guarantee. Um, so we finally treated housing as a human right. Um, and as a result, like everybody, all of the public health people have been saying for years had much better health outcomes uh, for low income people. and unhoused people as a result of them being indoors, who knew? Um, but yeah, yeah, and then, you know, we finally got some movement on the universal basic income so that we know for sure, uh, no matter what, uh, people are both housed and they have enough resources to feed themselves and their family, uh, no matter what other type of struggles they're going to. So I feel like, you know, our work as humans is really to raise the bar so that when we die, um, what people have to struggle with, the amount of things that people have to struggle with is much, much smaller. So yeah. eventually, you know, we get to a point where they can only really, they, they only really have to focus on their hopes and dreams and don't have to worry as much as we do right now.
0: Yeah. And living in accordance with the Earth's ecosystems. Yes. Daniel, you have a halo above you. Do you see that?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's just a film poster that has been on the wall for quite some time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Everyone who's just listening to this, you've got to go to the YouTube version of this and look at this angel. <laughs> uh, I'm Yeah, I'm definitely not kidding about you being president. I would absolutely volunteer for your campaign and I would organize some thriller flash mobs for you
1: (laughs) I'm gonna keep you to your word
0: (laughs) maybe maybe something better than thriller but something something Mm -hmm. yeah maybe a slow club song that all five people know (laughs) hey
1: it could be me you I got a couple other friends in a slow club
0: okay we'll make it spread (laughs) Uh, well, do you have any, anything else you want to add on, I want to give you the last, uh, the last word for this episode.
1: Uh, the, the only thing I would say is like, um, you know, I feel like everybody's having a whole lot of conversations about the current moment and like how this might be different than what we've seen in the past, especially when it comes to addressing uh, police brutality and white supremacy. But I always like to say, uh, you know, it's only going to be different if we make it so. Um, It's not going to be different uh, just because we hope um, we're going to have to actually put our bodies on a line to some degree. We might have to get back out on the streets. Um, And then we're going to have to put pressure on our politicians. And then, you know, us as politicians are going to have to take stands that might seem unpopular at the moment, um, even though they have popular outside support, Uh, there might be unpopular electoral support, and some of us might have to lose our positions as, uh, as a result of taking a stand, but we need to be prepared to do that.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic has already forced us to get out of our habits and our everyday routines. So while we're in the process of changing those up, we, got, we got to change a lot of things. It's going to be different. It has to be.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: well, thank you so much for all of, uh, you are working so hard and you're working for us. You're working for Justice, and I know that you don't sleep much, and you're a workaholic, and I just, yeah, want to say thank you, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me.
1: Of course, of course.
0: <laughs> Should That's I a... end the recording? <laughs> sure. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Uh, look up Daniel Lee, um, city council member of Culver City, etc <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm going to add that to my website and my Twitter.
0: Yeah, et cetera. (laughs) Okay.